many Christians and churches aren't quite sure about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. They know it's important, but they're not sure how it's supposed to affect them. And many others largely ignore it, only taking it on rare occasions. However, Jesus himself instructed his disciples to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of him. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast. The latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. And as always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at Radical.net. Based on Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, today's message from David Platt addresses the purpose of the Lord's Supper, as well as how we are to approach it as those who are unified around the gospel. We'll also consider who is supposed to take this meal and how often should we take it. Christians ought to be clear about the importance and the blessing of this ordinance instituted by Jesus. So with that, here's Pastor David of the sermon titled, The Best Meal in the World, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you in Montgomery County and Prince William and Loudoun, others from our Arlington location, which we're, Lord willing, going to be in a new location there in the fall, looking forward to that. But it's, it's so good to be together across Metro DC around God's Word. I do want to remind us before we dive into God's Word of something I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that we have our congregational meeting this Wednesday night here or at all of our locations And I want to strongly encourage every member of NBC to plan to be either here or at your location. Our congregational meeting is set aside every June, specifically as a time when we affirm any new elders in in our church family. And I shared with you a couple of weeks ago about three incredible brothers who are, who we are looking to celebrate and affirm as elders, uh, Jim Burris, Chuck Hollingsworth and Ken Tucker. You can find out information about all three of those brothers at mcleanbible.org slash elder nominees. There's videos just talking about God's grace in their life. All three of those brothers nominated by you, unanimously uh, examined and nominated by a team of members in the church and by our elders. So we're gonna have the opportunity this Wednesday not just to celebrate and affirm these brothers, but to get to know them more, to pray over them, All we pray to the glory of Jesus as the chief shepherd of this church. So as Christians, and specifically as members of this church, this is one of the most significant things we do as a church. So I really can't emphasize enough. I'm asking you to please make it a priority to be here uh, or at your location on Wednesday night at 7.30. We always start at seven o'clock for those who are able to come for a time of concentrated prayer before that. So that's coming this Wednesday night. Today, however, we are doing what we love to do most, opening God's word together to the next chapter and the next verse that we're walking through to hear what God is saying to us, specifically today in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. So we uh, were in verses 2 through 16 two Sundays ago. We took a little break last week as Mike 
uh, encouraged us from God's word, uh, particularly as fathers, both physical and spiritual fathers, but with implications for men and women, all of us in our lives. But now we're back to 1 Corinthians 11, and I want us to talk about the best meal in the world. Like, what comes to your mind when you think about the best meal you have ever eaten? Or could ever eat? What was it, Thai? There, there we go. All right. So that, that was quick. Like, did not take a second for Thai food to rise to the top. If I were asking my kids that question, I think what at least a couple of them would say is a chalupa or a quesadilla from Taco Bell. just shows you how low the standards are <laughs> for my children. But thankfully, it's only 99 cents. So, who am I to complain? So if I were to ask you the question, maybe Thai food would rise to the top, maybe a nice juicy steak, unless you are vegan, at which point tofu may rise to the top, or whatever else comes to your mind I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about the best meal in the world, but I would submit the meal we're talking about today and we are going to take today, eat today, drink today, far outweighs every other meal in the world. No comparison in the world with this meal. And it's called the Lord's Supper. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Really? That little wafer? And that little cup of uh, juice or wine, like, that is the best meal in the world. Like, I appreciate your little preacher tactic here, but I'm not buying it. Like, this just kind of destroys your credibility. On the contrary, once we understand what that little piece of bread, what that little cup represent, we realize this meal has has the power to change your life. This meal is actually designed by God to transform your life in new and fresh ways every time you eat it. And Taco Bell can't do that. (laughs) And neither can any other meal that may have come to your mind. So the challenge is we have to make sure to eat this meal right which is the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So just let's, let's jump to the first verse in our passage today, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. The Bible says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So what we're about to see is this coming together is for the Lord's Supper, for worship together, but they're coming together in a way that is not for good, but, so contrast, for the worse. In other words, you're worse as a result of coming together. Which leads us to ask then, doesn't it, how do we make sure as a church, when we come together, it's for good, for our betterment, for God's glory, and not for bad, for worse? Like, is it possible that in taking the Lord's Supper today, we could be worse off than when we came in. That's what this passage is saying. In fact, you you jump ahead down to verse 33. 
So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. We'll talk more about the context here. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the language there is talking not about their judgment of each other, but about how God will judge them. And then, just in case we're not getting the full seriousness of this, jump back up to the middle of the passage, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks, here it is again, judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Are you getting this? In this gathering of the church right now, God is telling us right now that how we take the Lord's Supper a few minutes from now is a matter of life and death. Literally. So how do we take the Lord's Supper, enjoy this meal in ways that are for our betterment, for our good, and ultimately in ways that are glorifying to God? Like that's a really important question because, well, frankly put, we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper and I don't want you to die. God doesn't want you to die because of the way you take this meal. This is that level of seriousness according to God. So with that kind of stage set, let's jump back to verse 17. I want us to read through this passage and hear what God is saying to us as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, the best meal in the world, together. Verse 17, the Bible says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray one more time. Now that we've read this, God, we ask you, please help us in the next few minutes to understand your good word to us. We want our gathering today, our coming together today. We want our coming together every Sunday, our coming together on Wednesday night as a congregation. We want every time we come together to bring honor to you and honor to one another. So help us, we pray, to understand what you're saying to us right now about our gathering, especially as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper to enjoy this meal. We want to do it right, oh God. We want to realize what it means, not just for this gathering, but for our everyday lives and all that we're walking through right now in them. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I was meditating on this passage this week, and making the connection with where we were a couple of weeks ago. I want you to see 1 Corinthians 11, kind of big picture, is talking about what happens when the, churches, when the church gathers together. And we saw what I'm going to call two essential characteristics of church gatherings. One, last a couple of weeks ago in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11, and now a second today. And there's many other characteristics of when the church gathers together, but 1 Corinthians 11 is pointing us to two of them. One, so just to review what we saw a couple of weeks ago, there is a beautiful understanding of gender mutuality when God's people come together. There should be a beautiful understanding of how women and men uniquely and wonderfully reflect God's glory, relate to one another. We saw particularly in marriage and then in the gathering of the church in ways that honor God and honor each other. How the church is designed for Women and men to both thrive with the good gifts God has given them for the building up of his church. How we're brothers and sisters in Christ, sons and daughters of God, co-heirs in his kingdom, co-laborers in his mission, loving and leading the church together with equal dignity as men and women, uniquely wonderful, wonderfully distinctly designed by God. So that's the first essential characteristic of church gatherings that we saw in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now today... We're adding to that a selfless devotion to gospel unity. If I could summarize what God is saying in this second part of 1 Corinthians 11, he's calling us to gather in a way that displays selfless devotion to gospel unity. Let me me show this to you. Starting the first few verses that we read, God says to the Corinthian church through Paul with implications for us today, The following instructions, I don't commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. We've seen that for in the first place. So this is the problem here. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And we know this was a major problem for the Corinthian church. It actually takes us all the way back to the very first chapter of this book. So If you have your Bible, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because I want you to see this in your Bible. If if you don't have a Bible, I'll have it up here on the screen. But we studied this a long time ago. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. And I want you to remember the whole setup of this entire letter to the church at Corinth started after, after uh, Paul begins by just greeting those who are reading this and uh, affirming who they are in Christ. Then he says, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, this is right out of the chute, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You see the repetition of words there focusing on unity in the church. Keep going, verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. That's the second time he uses family language. What I mean that each, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So you see the division, the quarreling here? How did this happen? It happened because they were looking to and following others besides Jesus as the one who brings them together in the church. It's separated into camps. There's the Paul camp over here. There's the Apollos camp over there. The Cephas camp over here. Even a Christ camp. As if Christ is divided. And the Bible is saying here, okay, you have differences. You like different teachers. You've been influenced in different ways. You have different perspectives. But don't look to your perspectives or your influences or different teachers to unite you. Look to Jesus to unite you. Amen. And it's really interesting. I was looking back at my notes from when we walked through this passage. And I just want to put up on the screen what we saw that day from God's word. Now, I want you to keep in mind, this was in February 2020 when all was right in the world. <laughs> like we'd heard a little bit about a, something in China that, that was affecting a small area of China. We had no idea what was to come in COVID. No idea what was to come in all kinds of tensions that would erupt around us. And on that day, it's just a couple of weeks before things started to, to break down and we weren't meeting, God said to us in this gathering through 1 Corinthians 1 that day, these are the exact notes from walking through this text. We saw as a relatively diverse church in a rapidly shifting culture, we heard God telling us three things. One, we must unite around Jesus in the church amidst so much division in our culture. Two, we must faithfully follow Jesus as the church when his word is so counter to our culture. And three, we must love like Jesus from the church when so many people need the gospel across our culture. And I read that and I was so overwhelmed because God in his sovereign knowledge and his merciful love for us 
He was giving us truth to stand on for a hard year to come. As a relatively diverse church and a rapidly shifting culture, this is what I love, what we love about this church family. How we represent over a hundred different countries and we don't all look alike. We don't all think alike about a lot of different things. But we do all think alike about one thing, Jesus. He's the one, no one else, no leader, no teacher, no politician, no personality, no background, no preference. No, one brings us together. His name is Jesus. What brings us together is not our preferences, our opinions, our experiences, our thoughts about this or that. What brings us together is our need for a savior and our love for him, our desire for him, our trust in the one who gave his life so that we might have life who rose from the dead, who reigns over all, who we love as the Lord of our lives. Like, we must unite around Jesus in the church amidst so much division in our culture. And we want to follow him when his word is so counter to our culture, as we have seen in series on sexuality and singleness and marriage, so many other issues. We trust and we love this word. And we want to live according to it no matter what it costs in this world. And we want to love like Jesus as the church. Like we will refuse to hold on to this world, this word with harsh hearts toward the world. Amen. Like we want to be salt and light with the grace and the mercy of God, the love of God. We want to honor everyone, period. Yes. Even those who may be farthest from this word. We honor, we care for, we show the compassion of God for. We want them to know the good news of God's love. We want that to be evident from us in a world where there's so much hatred. So if, if you're listening today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you don't yet believe the gospel, we pray that it will be clear today in our gathering that in what we have sung, how we have prayed, and all I'm saying now, that there is one true God who created you right where you're sitting, who knows you better than you know yourself. He's created you to know and enjoy him, walk with him forever. Problem is, you and I, all of us, have sinned against this God. We've all turned from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways and we're separated from God by our sin. And if we die in this state of separation from God, we will spend eternity separated from God and judgment due our sin. But the good news of the Bible, that's what gospel means. It means good news. The good news of the Bible is that this God loves us, loves you so much that he has come to us. He's come to us in the person of Jesus who has done what none of us could ever do. He lived a life we could not live, a life of no sin. 
And then even though he had no sin to die for, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of anyone who would trust in him. And the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death itself so that anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, what your background is, no one disqualified. If you will trust in the love of Jesus for you, you will be forgiven of all your sin before God and you'll be reconciled to enjoy him forever and ever. This is the gospel. I urge you today, put your trust in Jesus and the good news of God's love for you. And when you do, then keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus amidst all the temptations in this world to turn your eyes, and even in the church, to turn your eyes elsewhere. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And be a member of a church that comes together with eyes fixed on Jesus. Not because we all think or act or look or talk exactly alike, because we all love the same person with all our hearts and souls and minds, strength, and we all want to make his love known in the world. We want to glorify Jesus by spreading his gospel hope among the nations starting right where we live. And this, so this is what the Corinthian church had totally lost sight of. They'd lost sight of the unity they had in Jesus and different people were sowing division among them. And the same thing can happen today if we are not careful. This whole passage is about selfless devotion to gospel unity, specifically when the church comes together. So I gotta pick up the pace if we're gonna make it through this passage today and you get another meal for lunch, but uh, the, the picture of unity the Bible emphasizes is exemplified in the Lord's Supper. So when the church comes together to celebrate the body and the blood of Christ, it's a celebration of the unity we have in Christ. The problem is in Corinth, in the Lord's Supper, they were coming together and this was actually sowing division. Like they were becoming more divided by the way they celebrated the Lord's Supper. So here's the context that we read about in 1 Corinthians 11. Basically, when the church in Corinth would come together, think like on a Sunday night, everyone would bring food, but they wouldn't bring it like potluck to share with others. They'd each bring their own food for themselves. And the rich in the church would bring a lot of good food and drink for themselves. And the poor in the church would bring hardly any food or drink for themselves. And when they got there, the rich wouldn't share with the poor. Even worse, sometimes because the poor worked in more menial, even slave-like jobs, they wouldn't be able to control their schedule in the same way, so they'd come to the meal late. And by the time they got there, not only was all the food gone, but all the rich people were practically drunk. And that was the setting in which they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And God says, you've missed the whole point. This is not the Lord's Supper. That's the language he used, right? Verse 20. He said, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. This is not it. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? With your behavior, you're despising the church And humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
And then what he does is he tells them then what the Lord's Supper is. So that you're showing what it's not. Let me tell you what it is. It's all about. That's verses 23 to 26. And then in verses 27 to 34, he tells them how to take that meal in a worthy manner. So what I want to do in order to kind of bring all this to a head is I want to show us, remind us what God tells us about the Lord's Supper and how to celebrate it in a worthy manner, how to get the most out of this meal and how to make sure we're honoring God and each other in it. So I want to show you how the Bible answers five of the most basic questions we could ask about the Lord's Supper. Who, what, when, where, and why. And we're gonna hit these pretty quick, but you might write them down. And as you do, be reminded of the significance of the meal we're about to take. So first, who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Who, who takes the Lord's Supper? And the Bible teaches that followers of Jesus share in the life of Jesus as they take the Lord's Supper. The whole picture in the Gospels is Jesus sharing this meal with his followers. And every time we see the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, including here in 1 Corinthians, it only involves followers of Jesus, people have, who have trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord of their lives. And followers is a key word here, so I can just emphasize that. We're going to see in a minute that even if you call yourself a Christian, but you are deliberately disobeying Jesus in your life, then you should not take the Lord's Supper in that moment. So this is a reflection of faith in and following Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But for those in this gathering who would readily admit you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that you're exploring Christianity or you've come with a friend or family member, then you should not take the Lord's Supper today. But that doesn't mean you leave the room. No, those who are not followers of Jesus see the love of Jesus as they watch the Lord's Supper. So in just a minute, when followers of Jesus take this meal, which I'll explain the meaning of, we want you in that meaning to see the love of Jesus for you. Our aim is not to be inhospitable. I mean, how nice is it for us to invite you to a meal and say you can't eat in this gathering. And you might look at that little piece of bread and little cup and think, well, I'm not missing out on much. But we actually hope you see you're missing out on a lot. We, we pray that you will see as we take the Lord's Supper, you'll see and realize in your heart how much God loves you in a way that you might choose even today to put your trust and your life in the hands of the one who loves you this much. We are really thankful you are here in the gathering of this church. Which leads to the next question, where should we take the Lord's Supper? And the only biblical requirement we see is the gathering of the church. You look in what we read in 1 Corinthians 11 here four different times. Paul talks about when you come together. You saw that phrase over and over and over again. And it's in verse 18, verse 20, verse 33, and verse 34. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. And then even in verse 29, the Bible says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And while the body could be a reference there to the body of Christ, uh, as far as his physical body, it's more likely a reference to the church as the body of Christ without discerning the body of Christ around you. 
The Lord's Supper is not something we do alone, privately. It's something we do publicly when we come together. Just why? Throughout COVID, when we were separated from one another physically, we chose not to participate in the Lord's Supper. We waited until we could come together. This is when we take the Lord's Supper. Even now, if you're watching online, we invite you to come together with us physically. If you're not in Metro Washington, D.C., to come together with the church wherever you are, that you might share in this meal and celebrate the supper together with others. Which leads to the next question. When should we take the Lord's Supper? And on this question, the Bible doesn't give an explicit, specific answer. The Bible doesn't say, do it at these intervals. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, you look at verse 26, God says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup. So I would say we're on safe ground here. And then when we put this together with what we see in the early church, Acts chapter two, they were devoting themselves to this meal. That scripture commands us to observe it often. That's the word Jesus used. Celebrate the Lord's Supper often. Which then leads some to ask the question, what about weekly? Though the Bible doesn't command this, and therefore different churches do different the same, do this a bit differently. Even different locations here at NBC sometimes do this differently. I would say we have a possible hint at in, in Acts chapter twenty, verse seven, that seems to imply that the disciples in Troas were observing the Lord's Supper weekly. But even that causes some people to ask the question: Well, doesn't the Lord's Supper become too routine, like not quite as special if you do it that often? And sure, I guess that could be a danger. But if you're going to use that rationale, well, there's a lot of things we do regularly that are fairly special and important. And you eat fairly regularly. You drink fairly regularly. You sleep fairly regularly. And still pretty special times. Still pretty important times. Every week we sing. Should we just sing every quarter in order to make it special? Do we just preach the word, read the word every once in a while so that it's special? Like as the one element that God has prescribed for when we come together, then I think it's wise for us to think about how we do this often and we realize it's special every single time. Not just every once in a while, but often among us. And the reason for that leads to the final two questions. One, what is the meaning of the Lord's Supper? And the answer to this question takes us to something really important. I wish we had more time to dive into, so I'll just skim the surface here. But a traditional misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper is that there's a change of substance that results in salvation. So the big theological turn for this is transubstantiation. Let me say that together. Isn't it great? All right. Transubstantiation. Like if you are kid this morning, like you, you are learning a new word that you're going to just gonna, just pull it out somewhere this week. Be like, oh, mom, dad, I was thinking about transubstantiation the other day. And so here's what that means. This is the official understanding of the Lord's Supper in the Catholic Church. So according to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the Eucharist or the Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. In such a way that when you receive these elements, you are receiving Christ. This is exact language from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So what that means is, and this is, we can dive into so much here, but that means that your participation in the Eucharist, in communion, in the Lord's Supper, 
is a receiving of Christ where you are receiving means of grace in your salvation, a change of substance that results in salvation. But I want to just make it clear at this point, that is not what the Bible teaches. And understanding this distinction is key to a biblical understanding of the gospel and salvation. In the Lord's Supper, this is not a means by which we actually receive Jesus or receive salvation. Because if that's the case, that makes doing this necessary for salvation. And that's a fundamental altering of the gospel. Friends, we are not saved from our sin by anything we do. Even the most holy things we may do. We are saved from our sins by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And realizing this is critical for understanding what the Lord's Supper is. So a traditional misunderstanding is a change of substance that results in salvation. A biblical understanding of this meal is a symbolic meal that represents, reflects salvation. When Jesus says, this is my body, the verb he uses there for is, it's translated is, often means represents. When Jesus said this to his disciples, his body was still present in front of them, his blood still in his veins. There is nothing in the Bible that points us to the the bread and the cup actually becoming the body and the blood of Jesus in such a way that we receive Jesus and forgiveness through eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to be careful, though, even in pointing that out, emphasizing this, in an attempt to make clear that Jesus is not physically present in the bread and the cup, we can go too far, and we can start to look at the Lord's Supper like Jesus isn't present at all, when the reality is he is very present in a very real way, a far more meaningful way than in any way we might be earning salvation Now that leads us to the last question. Why should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And the Bible gives us many reasons for why. I'll summarize them here with four R's. Why celebrate the Lord's Supper? First, to remember. At the core, the Lord's Supper is about remembering. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25. When we take the bread, we remember the body of Jesus. We look at that bread and we remember God in the flesh, Jesus suffering in the flesh, dying in the flesh, his body on a, his real body on a real cross. We remember his body given for us and we remember the blood of Jesus when we look at this cup that covers over, blood that covers over all of our sins. We remember the price he paid for that to be a reality in our lives. This is so important. The Lord's Supper is not about imagining something in our minds, dreaming in some way. It's about deliberately directing our thoughts back to a real event 2,000 years ago when God in the flesh gave his body on a cross for our sins. It's about remembering the past with such vividness that it affects affects the present. We know this. We've been reading this in our Bible reading in Deuteronomy as a church where God says to people over and over and over again, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. Don't forget who I am. 
Don't forget how much I love you. Don't forget what I have done for you, my promises to you. We need to be reminded often, if not every week, when we come together amidst a world where we are constantly tempted to wander, every single one of us, we need to be reminded who our God is, how much he loves us, what he has done for us, his promises to us, and to feast on this remembrance. This is the Passover in the Old Testament. Remember, remember, remember what I did among you. And that's what this meal is based on, that picture. So we remember, two, we reflect. We reflect on our sin. This is verses 27 through 32 in 1 Corinthians 11. We read it from the start where God warns us not to come to this table in a callous or careless manner. God said in verse 28, let a person examine himself. Think about that language, examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself before you eat the bread or drink the cup. And let's be honest, this is not something we like to do or we naturally do, especially in our culture today. Even our church culture, we are so quick, if not eager, to examine others, to criticize them, to see and even seethe over what's wrong with those people on that side, to conduct a full examination of others in the courtroom of our minds, which is what we're constantly encouraged to do in our culture, it's not like social media is designed to humbly examine ourselves. It's designed to examine, point out faults in others, and put a false front out of ourselves. And God is saying crystal clear to us right now, stop, stop it, and examine yourselves. Reflect on your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your motives, your words, your actions, all laid bare before a perfect holy God who sees all and knows all and is pure above all. And the Lord's Supper if we don't reflect on our sin, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. That's what God is telling us. We put our health and our life at stake before God. God is saying, don't take this supper lightly. Students, teenagers, moms, dads, kids, don't take the supper lightly. Mom or dad, don't think, well, I'm, I know my child hasn't come to faith in Jesus, but I'm just gonna let them take the bread or the drink. Don't do it. They need to see the seriousness of this in you. And what an opportunity for you to talk with them about the seriousness of this. Teenager, man, woman, I urge you, don't sit here and think, I'm just gonna go through this religious routine. Any Sunday, including today, don't think like that. This is a serious time of self-examination before God. Examine yourself, every one of us in this room. Reflect on your sin. 
And here's the beauty. When we reflect on our sin, we also reflect on God's forgiveness. So this can sound like a downer of a meal, <laughs> right? I'm just thinking about all our sin, all our struggles just coming to the surface, but we don't need to be afraid to confess our sin before a God who is gracious and loving and merciful. And with every confession, he says, I've covered that. I've covered that. You pour out even the worst things, the things you would not want anybody else in this room, this gathering to know. And Jesus says, I know it and I hold it. I do not hold it against you. It's covered. It's covered. As far as the east is from the west, I've removed that sin from you. And do not hold it to your account. That's what makes this meal awesome. It's Jesus saying in a fresh way over your life, I love you and I forgive you. This meal just comes alive as we, we are feasting on Jesus' forgiveness of us and his faithfulness to us, which leads us to the next R here. We renew, we renew our commitment to Jesus. So yes, yes, we don't take the supper to earn salvation before God, but when we take this supper, we celebrate and consecrate ourselves, commit our lives in a fresh way in the salvation we have experienced by his grace. When we take this bread and this cup, we're saying in a Galatians 2.20 kind of way, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His life is my life. Yes, we are feasting on Jesus in that kind of way through faith in him. And this is so key, especially in the context here of 1 Corinthians 11, because these people were thinking if they just ate the food and drank from the cup, God would be pleased with them no matter what was going on in their lives. And this is the whole point. We renew our commitment to Jesus. We renew our commitment to each other. So put it together. The Lord's Supper is an expression of our unity together in Jesus, which the Christians in Corinth were totally missing. Getting together, rich, gorging themselves, even getting drunk, the poor going without food. And the Bible says, no, your body, you come around the table together as one body with no barriers between you. The plane is level at the Lord's table. Amen. And we're all for each other here. Yes. And we're, we're renewing our commitment to each other when we come around this table together. And we renew our commitment to his mission. You notice in verse 26, Paul says the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of Jesus' death until he comes. So there's a proclamation element to the Lord's Supper. We're not just eating and drinking. We're proclaiming something. And that's the essence of mission, right? Proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God's love. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming we're a people bought from every nation, tribe, and tongue for his praise. Until he comes, which leads to the last R that we do in the Lord's Supper, we rejoice. On, on two levels. One, because Jesus has set us free. You know, because of some of the things we've talked about today, Rightly so, the Lord's Supper is often perceived and participated in in a solemn, serious, contemplative tone. And clearly, to some extent, it should. It must be that way. We don't want to treat this meal casually. We're examining ourselves, but we don't stop there. Like we said, we don't just think about our sin. 
and then walk away engrossed in how horrible our sin is. No, we are feasting on not just God's forgiveness, but the freedom God has given us. When we look at those elements, we realize God has freed us from the penalty of sin. He died for us so that we wouldn't have to experience death. The judgment of God that we deserve, he experienced on our behalf. We're free from the penalty of sin and we are free from the power of sin. Jesus lives in us. The one who has conquered sin and death and the grave is alive in you and you are no longer a slave to sin. You are a child of God with the Holy Spirit of God living in you, power over sin. That's reason to rejoice. He set us free. (laughs) What other meal will you eat this week, this month, this year in your life that sets you free from the power and penalty of sin and death? That's why it's the best meal in the world. And we rejoice, so that's not the only reason we rejoice because Jesus is coming back. So notice the time limitation on this meal. We proclaim, we take this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death, the Bible says, until he comes. Jesus said back in Luke chapter 22, verse 18, before he went to the cross, said to his disciples, I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. What that means is when we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just looking back. We are looking forward. We're looking forward to the day when Jesus will return for all who have trusted in him. And we will drink this cup together with him, face to face with him in his kingdom. This is so significant, not just for our gathering, but for our everyday lives. Just feel what this means. Yes, for when we come together. And for what this means in the middle of whatever you are going through. Amidst your hurts, amidst the pain you have experienced in this life, amidst suffering you're walking through right now, amidst attacks you face, amidst trials you endure, amidst even struggles with sin, amidst sorrow in this world, amidst it all, the Lord's Supper is a regular reminder to you and me that one day all of those things will be no more. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more attacks, no more trials, no more temptations, no more struggles. One day he will wipe every tear from our eyes and those things will be no more. And every time we take the supper, Lord's Supper, we remember that trials in this world are temporary and life and joy in God are eternal and nothing can ever take that away from us. That's reason to rejoice. So... Will you, will you bow your heads with me? I just, in this moment, your heads bowed and eyes closed. I know, I know there's some who are here in this gathering right now, in this room and other locations who are maybe watching online who you've not yet put your trust in Jesus in this way. And God has been speaking to your heart in the last few minutes. And this is the moment. I just want to invite you in your heart to pray to God right now and just say to him, 
God, I, I know I have sinned against you. I have turned aside from your ways to my own ways. But today I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven of all my sin. I could be restored to you. So I say today, yes to Jesus. I trust in your love for me. I trust you as Lord of my life. Uh, when you express that to God by faith, he forgives you of your sin, restores you to relationship with him. And, and with that, we would invite you to take this meal and for all who are about to take this meal, who have expressed that faith, are followers of Jesus. We say together to you, oh God, thank you for this meal. We, we confess, God, that uh, if we're not careful, we can come to the Lord's Supper and miss the meaning, really miss the wonder of what it is. And we just say in a fresh way today, thank you for the invitation to be at your table. We don't deserve to be here. We thank you for the invitation to feast on your forgiveness and to feast on your faithfulness and your love. So we pray that you would be honored in the way we do that now. You would be glorified in the way we take the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are you a lead pastor or a decision-making leader in your church? If so, would you like to learn how your church can reimagine your resources for the sake of the lost and unreached in this world? Or maybe gain a vision for how to shift the idea of existing mission opportunities or maybe receive detailed discipleship resources to expose, engage, and empower your congregation in Great Commission work? Well, if that sounds interesting, then we invite you to join us for the upcoming Radical Intensive. The Radical Intensive is a two-day event for lead pastors and decision-making senior leaders and their teams to encourage and equip you to lead your church to make disciples of all nations, particularly in places of most urgent spiritual and physical need. And the dates for this upcoming Radical Intensive are September 27th and 28th here in the Washington, D.C. metro area at McLean Bible Church. These two days are really groundbreaking. If you've ever been a part of a radical intensive in the past, you know that connecting with other like-minded church leaders who are seeking to rectify this great imbalance of mission forces to mission fields. And so we don't want anyone to miss out on this opportunity. So if that interests you, then head over to RadicalIntensive.com to register your team and be there with us September 27th and 28th at the Radical Intensive. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us there at Radical.net.